Hello, everyone, here with Avril Compton, as always. And we're marking two weeks now um, since the first um, Hamas terror attacks on Israeli civilians that kicked off the current conflict. And I think, um, Avril, you had a bit you wanted to say about the conflict we're seeing going on in the Middle East right now, do you not? Yeah, I do. And and, and it's a good subject. Well, it's an important subject for it to open up on, James, I think. We've got to take into account that there are four groups, well, if you want to, five if you count Iran, but four lots involved. There's Hamas, who are about 2% of the Palestinian population, but a lethal, highly organised uh, political and, 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 and war force. Uh, and 98% of the population of Gaza and Palestine, the Palestinian people, uh, who are peaceful people, my experience of meeting them in various places, including in Palestine, is that they are moderate, genuine Muslim people uh, who want to live a peaceful uh, life. And, and we seem to be wanting to punish them in the same way as Hamas, and I find that badly. On the other side, you've got Netanyahu, the Prime Minister of Israel, who I have no faith in whatsoever. And I believe the ordinary people of Israel... While some of them want to go to war, I believe the majority don't want to go to war, and I don't think that they should be judged by what Netanyahu does. I think uh, uh, we've uh, the Pal in, in particular the Palestinian civilians are not being treated well. Now you give me your view of it, James, and I'll add to my comment. I mean, we talked about it because last week we sort of talked about the conflict a bit and talked about the historical context and that behind it. And we talked about how, you know, for 16 years, Palestinian civilians have been under military blockade from Israel by sea, and no food or water or whatever can get in and out of Palestine, uh, Gaza without the permission of the Israeli military and Navy. Um, now we're seeing they're making it incredibly hard for food and water to come in and out of Palestine. I know Biden flew over there and he got in Netanyahu's ear about not being um, such a genocidal freak, essentially. And after Biden pushed a bit, um, to Biden's credit, he was able to open up some humanitarian corridors for aid. Only yeah, some, min minuscule, only some, only minuscule, some. mate. Um, minuscule. Yeah, which twenty-four which, trucks and twenty-four trucks, mate, are not going to look after no. two million people. No. And I thought Biden's thing was, was really appalling. Uh, he knew perfectly well. He needed the headline to get himself out of town on, and those twenty-four trucks are a joke. No, it's it, it it's it's minuscule, but a it is better than nothing, and b given where U.S. rhetoric with Israel normally is, which is unwavering and unquestioning support for Israel, I think it's going to have to be a very gradual process to sort of divorce America from that unwavering support for Israel because over the past 16 years while that blockade's been going on we've seen that be it Obama or Trump um, who was in power at the time uncritical and unwavering support for Israel um, Biden's really the first president who's ever urged Israel to show restraint or caution um, in committing atrocities against Palestinian civilians because let's let's remember as we talked about last week it's not like the past two weeks is the first time Israel has ever committed atrocities against Palestinian civilians. They've been doing it for, on one view, 16 years, and on another view, 75 years. 
Um, and like you say, it's it's just terrible what the people of Gaza are going through. Half the people, and you, people will point to things like saying, oh, but Hamas is technically the elected government in Gaza. And that's true. But the last time there was an election in Gaza was 2006. And over half the population of Gaza right now wasn't even alive in 2006, let alone voting. So like you point out, it's incredibly important to separate Hamas, who are a small fraction of very violent terrorists, from the two million other regular civilians who live there who want peace and refuge and just to live a normal life. And I think this the Greens came out early with such a message, so credit to the Greens there. But um, this week we saw Muslim Labor MPs, Anne Ali and Ed Husek, come out and say that Israel is engaging in collective punishment of Palestinian civilians for the crimes of Hamas and telling Israel to back off. And that was incredibly brave from Ed Husek and Ed Ali because it goes directly against what some senior Labor figures like Richard Miles are saying. And frankly, I have very little time for Richard Miles. He's a uh, he's a warmongering moron. Um, but the, the stand... Let's just, Ali... just, just, just come, come at, a, at a couple of things there. I, I, I strongly backed on Twitter um, and, and uh, uh, both uh, Ed Husek and uh, uh, and Ali in the stand they took. Now, but we've got the problems goes further. We've had the New South Wales government and the New South Wales police not acting terribly democratic with Palestinian uh, people wanting to hold rallies. And I think uh, uh, the police in their own mind label them as potential terrorists, uh, uh, you know, or whatever. But it comes back to leadership in the whole thing, doesn't it? The greatest leader of Israel in their in their history, in their recent history, I mean, in the 80 years they've been free, was Golda Meir. Now, Golda Meir was a very strong person. She wasn't going to have anybody invading uh, Israel. But she had a compassion about her that Netanyahu had never, ever thought about. She knew when you had to draw the line about who you killed and who you didn't kill. And, and desperately, but a new leader is needed for Israel one way or another. And Australia has got an altered policy of coming out behind the Jewish people every time. We've got to take into account that part of the problem that causes the reprisal is that Israel constantly builds new settlements in Palestinian land taking land off Palestinian people and then expecting them to do nothing about it. And so the aggression, all this aggression has been caused by the Israeli pinching land in the West Bank and denying Gaza the basics they need to live. That's all Israel's fault. And they've got to, now we've got Iran coming in now making a political issue of it, and that changes the equation in all sorts of ways, doesn't it? Yeah, and I mean, I, I suppose the only thing I'll say is we absolutely should come out and stand with the Jewish people um, because there are, you know, Jews all over the world who suffer anti-Semitism every day. It's specifically um, Israeli settler colonial settler colonialists who we should be maybe not so quick to throw our support behind because, as you say, um, ev every day in Palestine there are people who come from, like, New York or Europe um, to immigrate into Israel, and then they kick some Palestinian people off their land in Gaza or the West Bank, 
And yeah, it's it's um what happens I think in Gaza and the West Bank and has been happening is a real almost silent epidemic. And I don't think it's really been covered very well in Western news outlets at all. So for some people, this is sort of the first they're hearing of atrocities being committed against Palestinian people in Gaza and the West Bank. But it's been happening for 70 years. Now, Iran is an interesting one because it. I, I think uh, Iran is openly hostile to the state of Israel. Uh, and I think really uh, Iran wants to... I don't think they particularly care for the plight of the Palestinian people because if they did, they would open their doors to Palestinian refugees and say, we'll take you all in. Um, I think Iran wants to just use this to destabilise Israel and cause a bit of um, angst in the region because that's something they profit out of. So we, we've got multiple... Yeah, Iran needs to take, James, Iran needs to take into account that Israel does have nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. I don't think Iran has. They deny that they have. But Israel does have nuclear weapons and if pushed to a limit, uh, it could do something. We need to move on to other things because of our time, James, but I believe that the whole situation in the Middle East is now a crisis of quite significant proportion. It's taking emphasis away from the war in Iran, in Iraq, and sorry, in Ukraine, rather, you know, and, and that's a bad thing. But it's also is going to cause the petrol prices to rise in the Arab take retribution against it. Uh, the ramifications worldwide are quite considerable, and I think you and I'll be talking about this on our program, you know, for a few weeks yeah. or longer. Yeah, more That's than well, let's, let's get to let's get to voice. As you know, I campaigned for voice and I voted yes, uh, but I've got to say that voice ran one of the worst campaigns I've ever seen in my life. It really was appalling, and we can come back to that. I, I went to the polls and voted knowing that I was on the losing side. I didn't think it would be as decisive as it was. I was thinking 55 to 45, but it didn't. Turned out more than 60, 40, and here in Queensland it was 70, 30. But mind you, Tasmania and South Australia and Western Australia weren't all that far behind uh, behind Queensland. And so we have a situation where voice is lost and what are we going to do from here on? And apparently a solution is going to be found one way or another. But Indigenous people, First Nations people everywhere are calling for a whole years of truth-telling so that we get the message about, you know, what happened to the British. Now, I don't believe that the, the, the voice lost because people didn't understand what happened to the whole thing, what happened in past history. And truth-telling isn't going to do a single thing to help anyone. What we've got to do is now all of us get into their hands, get into the ring and get our hands dirty getting rid of the disadvantage there is. And I'm going to a meeting on Monday uh, with an Indigenous organisation to work out how people like me can listen to what they want and see what we can do without governments and without referendum. Having voice-telling, I think, is an absolute joke of massive proportions. It will do nothing. But we've got to get our hands dirty fixing this game. Well, I suppose um, I'm going to do the thing I always do and push back on the claim that, yes, we're in a dreadful campaign. The first thing is I don't think it's possible to look at the yes campaign without looking at the uh, 
Gatling gun of lies and misinformation and deceit. That was the no campaign. Um, you know, you had people all across this country voting no because they thought Thomas Mayo could come onto their land, kick them off it, that the voice was some sort of land grab, um, that it would, you know, do all these horrible things. It would make it so Indigenous people can have power of veto over legislation. Uh, don't, don't agree with that, James. But, don't agree with that, mate. But, I, have, I have found a lot of people since that their main reason for voting no was that they feel that it had nothing to do with what Thomas Mayo, I mean, a few people vote followed Thomas Mayo and what I agree with what you're saying there. Most people voted no because they, throughout their lifetime, billions of dollars have been allocated to Indigenous people. There have been no results about it. And they were just wanting to say they'd had a gutful of the whole procedure, that nothing was working. And they didn't think that voice would make the slightest uh, improvement, you know, in the whole business. Well, so to, to my mind, that's the very sort of paternalistic racism, and I'm going to call it racism, that has doomed Indigenous people to the fate they're currently in. Because a huge part of the problem and the huge part of the inequalities that Indigenous people face today is white fella coming in over the top and saying, no, no, you don't know what's best for you. I know what's best for you instead, and I'm going to tell you what you need. I'm going to tell you what I think is best for you. If you look at the polling booths in the Northern Territory, both federal seats in the Northern Territory voted no, but the polling booths in remote and rural areas voted yes at 70-80%. It's the same deal in far north Queensland. If you look at the polling booths um, in seats like Kennedy, Bob Catter's seat, the majority white seats voted over, the majority white polling booths voted overwhelmingly no, but the majority Indigenous polling booths voted overwhelmingly yes. The one thing that I think is interesting about the results is if you look at referendum which satisfy three qualities, namely initiated by Labor without bipartisan support and not held alongside an election, there have been 11 such referendums in the country's history. All 11 have failed. And if you look at the percentage of yes vote that they all got, voice is actually bang in the middle, ranking sixth out of 11. So if you compare it to referendums that have taken place in historically similar settings, i.e. Labor government, not bipartisan support, and not held alongside an election. The raw number that voice got isn't actually that bad. It's pretty pretty bang average, almost what you'd expect. Um, but moving on to what you actually want to talk about, because that was a bit of a detour, what we need to do to move forward. I think truth-telling goes beyond just British invasion, because truth-telling is about everything from yes invasion but also the stolen generations also the northern territory intervention and also yeah the neglect the deaths in custody we're seeing today just this week yeah, we saw that... a 16 year old boy in a wa prison an indigenous boy um in an adult prison um commit suicide and i think really the call for truth telling involves a lot more than just a reflection on the distant past but it also involves reflection and policy making centered around the really dark underbelly of disadvantage, especially yeah, in our criminal the, justice the, system face today. The, the James, James, I want to disagree, mightily, mate. I don't believe that white people have been getting around telling Indigenous people what they ought to do. The money allocated by governments, and I didn't say this during the referendum because I want the referendum to win. 
it is handed out by what's known as the Aboriginal industry, people headed by Noel Pearce and all these people. They hand out, the money is given and they hand it out and very little of it gets down to Indigenous communities. Now, I know this on person because I, when I was chairman of National Seniors, I took a plane ride with Bales Meyer when we were organising for white retired nurses to go into Indigenous communities where they were invited and not near to teach hygiene. And, and, and they were very well received because they didn't come in and tell people what to do. They sat down and chatted about what the problem was and what were simple things that might happen. And they had enormous reception. People came and listened to them. But we found in there that very little of the money allocated to it was getting down to those people. I went to six communities and they, they got little of it. It was all the, the Aboriginal industry, the layers of people all the way down that administer this that take that money and it doesn't get there. Now, I want to fix it that it gets there and I want governments to give the money direct to communities, not to the Aboriginal industry, and let those communities decide how they want to spend the money uh, themselves. It's given to them with no strings attached. And I think we've run the whole thing abominably poorly. And, and I think that's, I'm certain that's got to change. I'm, um, I'm reticent to use the term quote-unquote Aboriginal industry, because that's a Jacinta Price term, but I know the phenomenon you're talking about. It's been used long before Jacinta Price was born. The words Aboriginal industry were around when I was a boy. It was not a Jacinta Price word. They only won. She only won. and Well, I don't believe they won. The Yes campaign gave them so many free kicks, they, they staggered over the line. I, I, I refuse to give credit to Dutton and Price and Mundine for winning. I don't believe they did. Voice was sold so badly, they just had a dream run. Uh, again, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to disagree there, but I think it, it's beside the point because we want to really be using what little time we have left to talk about, left in this podcast, to talk about ways forward. And I should say, when I talk about sort of Whitefella imposing his ideas on Indigenous Australians, I just don't mean with monetary allocation. I'm talking everything from um, you know, the Northern Territory intervention to the way we sentence people in our criminal justice system. Like the, the statistics are there, and I've talked about this before, where sentences handed down on Indigenous offenders that are that involve circle sentencing or collaboration with local um, and tribal elders and tribal punishments and tribal sanctions and those sorts of things, community sanctions within Indigenous communities, as well as like blended with our regular criminal justice system. They have far, far better rates of rehabilitation than just putting someone through the regular sentencing process um, as you would an Anglo offender. And those are the sorts of things I'm talking about where um, putting aside um, the convicts who many of whom, once they were freed, were given massive plots of land, the Indigenous people are the only people in this country who didn't choose this form of government that we have. Um, and it's at the point where I think what is borne out through this country's history is that, like you say, when you guys did that program with the nurses, rather than just coming in and teaching the way we would at like an Anglo nursing school, how to be a nurse, et cetera, um, working deeply with communities, alongside communities and rather than going in and saying 
this is how we're going to help you saying what do you want um how do you fix this um listening to the voice of the indigenous communities and peoples we have all around this country gee if only there was a referendum on where we could have done something about that wow shocker um i i really do think that's the way forward but that way forward does necessarily involve an element of truth telling and again not just about what happened 250 years ago although that always will do large in the background but what is still happening today and these real black spots and blind spots where systemic oppression and struggle um, like black deaths in custody and those sorts of things are still being felt today and we, we do need truth telling both, well, both, both for the past truth. and the present and future james i don't believe truth telling is going to fix that we've got to take action directly to fix it we uh, i'm going to go to to the attorney general, generals everywhere, and say, let's fix these things. Don't go through the rubbish of truth telling. Let's fix them. I want to fix the stuff today that that are wrong in consultation with indigenous people. Saying, right, how do we get out of these problems? Not having these wrong. One of the reasons why Voice lost was that they tried to make everyone in Australia feel guilty, and there was a lot of people who voted no simply because you know of that now i believe that, that that we've got to take direct action now no wasting no going around the deaths in custody thing's got to be hit fair on the head in all the parliaments of the nation in consultation to how they get out now i think we better move on to some some other things but uh, and we can keep reviving these but i think changes to the constitution that you and i talked about last week and that i'm working on can do a lot to work out how this can uh, be done. I think the way voice was presented was a, a disaster. But uh, uh, you and I can keep evolving on what, how we can we take direct action now to fix all this and, and cut out all the talk, but make sure it's the Indigenous people that do most of the talking and not us. So I think that's, uh, you know, that's the whole thing. C- could we move on for a minute about just the state of acts in Australia? Uh, and I'm just looking at the time. Well, we haven't got that much time. But the issue of banks not wanting to talk to people and not wanting to serve people. In the New Daily today, the newspaper that uh, put out by the trade unions, uh, and it's a good paper. I read it every week. Uh, uh, they, they have uh, uh, pointed out that banks are now wanting to cut out all cash transactions. They don't want anything handled. The banks want to handle everything online so they don't want people coming in and wanting cash they're removing atm machines so people can't they tax they can't get the cash they want people to use their credit cards and they want people to go online and lots of australians aren't able to do that and i think you will make kings be a little better get moving to get a post office bank that might that might fix some of this but banks want to move to a thing where none of us carry a single item of cash on us ever. And, and and they don't want people coming into banks. They want banks to be sealed off of the community and you contact them online. This to me is pretty antisocial sort of stuff. And I, I, I don't believe you can ever have a cashless society. Do you believe we can? I mean, I, I think you can maybe two, three generations down the line. But the fact of the matter is nowadays we've got a huge chunk of the population for whom um, cash has been 
you know, in vogue for like 75, 80% of their lives. And I think it's a bit unfair on um, a lot of older Australians, many of whom, and I, I don't mean you, Avril, because you're very tech literate, but a lot of older Australians who are not necessarily tech literate to force them onto online banking. Um, I don't think that's right in circumstances where there are so many scams and pitfalls and tricks with on with the internet that can really prey on people who aren't very tech literate. Um, it's almost important to keep cash as a fail-safe to keep people who haven't grown up in the era of online banking, you know, safe from um, online banking scams and those sorts of things. So, I do. Well, I think, you know, what what means is that the world is, you know, is changing, uh, you know, quite significantly in your life and, and my life and, this is one of those changes. We just let's move on to our traditional good guys and bad guys of the week, yeah, because that's an important element of our program. We've got a few minutes left. Now, the good guys of this week are the Sydney Opera House. Are you an Opera House person, young James? Um, I went there this year to watch Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part One live in concert with my mum and my cousin. It's pretty cool. Very well, cool, actually. Do you realise that this week was the 50th yep, anniversary 50th. of the opening of the Opera House? Yeah. It was a big event in Australian history, and, and, and there was a saga about how the designer of Rutzen got sacked, and well, there's a hell of a lot of politics in it. But finally, most of the world, when they think of Australia, think of a picture. What well, the picture they have of Australia is a picture that's got the Opera House and the Sydney Harbour Bridge in it. And that opera house is known almost to the world. Well, I'll go this far to say the opera house is more famous than the Nula out in the middle of Australia. In Worldline, the opera house is our icon. Do you see it that way? Uh, definitely, definitely. People, like, whenever you've got a, a movie or a TV show where there's, there's Sydney in the movie or TV show, they always do the wide shot of Sydney Harbour with the opera house and the bridge in it. It's, yeah, quintessential. Yeah, and, and to me, well, so the, the Opera House are my good guys of the week. Good on them, and may they continue. Now, who are you, who's your good guy of the week? Um, my good guys of the week are the um, Congressional Republican Party for being such a shit show in trying to get a new speaker elected and failing to get a new speaker elected that it seems they are doing everything in their power to give the Democrats control of Congress back at the 2024 election which we would obviously love to see because we want the Republicans out of power as quick as we could. So thank you, uh, Congressional Republicans, this week. they um, Jim Jordan was their speaker nominee this week. They put him up three times and he lost all three votes. Jim Jordan, their speaker nominee, was, of course, involved in covering up sexual assault and molestation allegations by student wrestlers at Ohio State University. So not exactly a cool dude. But nevertheless, the Republicans thought, yeah, this guy's great. We want to get him as the speaker. But a cluster of them still said, no, we don't want him. And they're, uh, they're, they are less stable than the Liberal Party was during the Abbott, Turnbull, Morrison years. And hopefully, hopefully, with any luck, it will lead to Democrats taking back the House of Representatives. Okay. In no, I think there's more to it than that. First of all, they now nominated two guys they're going to vote on. Their name just put out a few minutes ago. Uh, and there'll be another fiasco. I think the Republican Party is going to split. The, 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 the Trump wing of the party will split from 
what you might call the moderates, and the moderates are the minority, I think. And, and I think the Republican Party is going to come apart. They just can't keep going, uh, you know, uh, they just can't keep going like this. What will happen is that a number of the moderates, if they keep going now, a number of the moderates will defect and start a party, and so the Democrats will become the majority leaders in the House because, you know, that, 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 that will have defected. And America with the Republican Party, but bear in mind was the party of Abraham Lincoln, they've strayed a long way from where Abraham Lincoln was. That party, I think, is going to come to an end. And um, I think I, that's I, how serious it is. I should say, before we get on to our bad guys, that's what's happened in the Alaska um, State Congress already, that the moderate Republicans and Democrats are in a coalition government to freeze out the trumpling of the Republican Party from power. So it's not yeah, without reason. Let's hope that. That continues. Now, the bad guys of the week, I'll let you go first. I'm a democratic person, mate. What's your bad guy of the week? Um, my bad guy of the week is Queensland opposition leader David Crisafulli, who has walked back a commitment from the Queensland Liberal Party to engage in treaty talks and support treaty talks with First Nations Australians. Uh, it's very clear from our previous discussion that you and I disagree about why voice failed, but it seems like what David Crisafulli thinks is that there is political capital to be exploited in sticking the boot into Indigenous communities and throwing them under the bus. And by walking away a commitment to treaty negotiations um, and state-level treaties are happening in Victoria, there might be moves in New South Wales towards a state-level treaty. So we're seeing a lot of momentum building behind state-level treaty, and that's something that's very important for reconciliation. Um, him walking away from it is a pretty clear-as-day um move towards a very racist culture war style campaign that I think he might run in the upcoming Queensland election, uh, state election. Well, uh, year. He, so. uh, he made a political, first of all, he, 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 I agree with you, he made the wrong decision, but he made what was probably an apt political decision because here in Queensland, I can tell you, even the ones who voted yes have had a gutful of the whole issue of treaties and, and, and referendum, just had a gutful. They wanted off the agenda to concentrate on the things in the community which are bad. Crime is, youth crime is horrendously bad. He snipped the breeze and knows that even the ones who voted yes have had a gutful of it all. Now, but the problem was Christopher, he voted for the treaty thing in the, yeah. in the Queensland Farm, but he voted for it. Now he's ratted on. Now Anastasia has now said, well, she can't proceed because of him. Now Anastasia has made a mistake. She should have said, okay, he's out. Well, I'm continuing. And, and, and uh, if it loses, it's his fault, but I'm continuing. I don't think she should have backed off either in the whole in the, yeah. in the whole end. No, I, I don't disagree there. Who's your bad guy this week? Well, my, my, my bad guy of the week is the... Um, Bob called Glencore and international mining company called Glencore that are going to close down a mine in Mount Isa by 2025. Now, I'm not going to argue the economics of whether the mine was unviable or not. There had to be a better way to handle it because they've now said 1,200 people are going to be progressively fired between now and 2025. And so those people have got to go somewhere else to find a job. Immediately, the Glencore made that announcement. The prices of houses in Mount Isa dropped like a stone. 
if, 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 if a worker leaves town now to go somewhere else, who is going to buy their house at the price they paid for it? Absolutely no one. So you've got all the workers who are going to lose their life saving because nobody is going to want to buy a house in Mount Ida that even they know they won't be able to sell when they want to get out. And the whole thing was handled appallingly badly. And I mean, you know, when, when Glencore runs an industry that destroys the planet, um, they should take some responsibility for, you know, retrenching, retraining and supporting the workers whose lives are upended by the fact that what Glencore is doing, we have realised, is not sustainable. Um, and it's pretty pretty dodgy for that whole burden to be cast upon the individual workers while the company and its shareholders get to run away with their profits and, you know, metaphorically kick up their feet on a beach in Cabo. So, yeah. yeah they're, 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 they're not, by the way, mate, they're not digging up coal in Mount Isra. It's copper and zinc are the main ones that are out there. I don't know of any coal that's coming out of the right. place. But anyway, anyway, you know, that's that's where we are. Well, now, James, uh, it, it, what we've got to do with this whole voice thing is work out a path forward and I and, and you and I can talk about this in future. How we have a path forward without going through all sorts of painful recriminations and process. Pick all of the issues one at a time. Consult as widely as possible with Indigenous people. Get them to make a decision, for them, so that we don't have to wait for a voice. We force parliaments to handle everything about that causes disadvantage, discrimination, injustice. Uh, Demean, demeaning at everything, politicians are now going to pick up and progressively fix this. We can't let them off the hook, can we? Yeah, I mean, we we should not take the attitude that, and we're, we're, we were both immensely supportive of voice because of the social justice benefits that would inure from it, but we can't take the attitude that just because voice was failed, now we abandon our Indigenous brothers and sisters and our First Nations brothers and sisters and move on to different issues. Um, we need to really do everything we can to keep reconciliation moving forward and closing the gap moving forward. No, they're not different issues. They're issues relating to their life, not, uh, not different issues. Right now, I want to make sure that the things that give them disadvantage, somebody moves to fix them. We yeah, don't that, need to wait yeah. We don't need to wait years while they talk about it. That, Somebody's got to move to fix them. That's what yeah. I mean. We shouldn't just say, "Oh well, voices failed. We'll ignore Indigenous issues now." We have to get straight back to it. Um, well, you can take it. I'm attending a meeting this week uh, with, with with white guys and, and and First Nations guys to plan a small step that I'm going to get involved in that handles this and gets away from. All the chatter. Well, it's been uh, it's been good to talk with you, mate, and, and we'll talk again uh, uh, next week. And uh, and I think we've only got one minute left on our <laughs> meet, and they start charging you money, mate. So we'll <laughs> we'll get off. So yep. bye for now. We'll talk next week. Yep. Thanks for listening, everyone. Ciao for now.